Why don't you all grab a seat and uh, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, that's where we're going to be at today. And if you guys have been with us over the past few months, you know that we've been going through the book of Revelation. And uh, we're kind of actually coming to the very end of this great book. We've got about two more chapters left after today. Uh, that means that we're going to be starting a brand new series. I think I've got a slide up here I'll show you. Uh, I mentioned to you guys last week we're going to be announcing the new series that we're going to be going through this summer. And we're basically going to be calling it Great God, uh, Simple Faith, and Just Some Regular People. We're going to be essentially looking at all of chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. It's this great chapter that is full of God. It's all about God. And uh, sometimes it's referred to as the Hall of Faith. Uh, we're purposefully not going to be identifying it as such because the other corollary of Hall of Faith is Hall of Fame. In other words, we think of Hall of Fame as being like, these are the studs. These are the dudes these are the great women. These are the great, powerful people that know how to do stuff. And the reality is, the people you find in Hebrews chapter 11, some of them, yeah, they did great things, but a lot of them were boneheads. They're just regular people. They weren't really extraordinary. They weren't great people, really, by any stretch of the imagination. But they served a great God. So we're going to really emphasize the fact that it's a chapter about God's greatness. And it's a chapter that God, through his greatness, seeks to partner to some degree with humanity. By faith, we follow God. By faith, we trust God and command God. I'm already preaching. We haven't even started this yet. So I'm not going to preach yet. I'll wait for three more weeks. And then we're going to start into this. But one of the things I'm really excited about going through chapter 11 of the book of uh, Hebrews uh, over the summer is that you guys are going to get an opportunity to hear uh, many of our other pastors and elders here at the church that are going to be teaching with you guys. So we're going to be doing sort of this rotation tag team. I'm really excited about that uh, because bottom line is I want you guys to know that we've got a lot of great teachers a great, uh, you know, just men of God at this church that are gifted and apt to be able to teach God's word. And so you guys are going to have an opportunity to hear some of them. So I'm certain you guys are going to be really blessed. My final exhortation to you guys is this, is go home over the next few weeks and just read chapter 11. Read the last few verses, like the last eight verses of chapter 10, and then read chapter 11. Just keep reading through it and let God begin to speak to your heart. Kind of like marinate on tri-tip. Just like marinate your heart in God's word. Doesn't that sound good right now? God's word and tri-tip, right? I mean, both. Be awesome. That'd be a great Father's Day right now. And uh, just let God's word just be broken out in your heart and read it. and Let it just begin to speak to you. So when we get to going through the actual chapter, uh, you guys would already have an opportunity to be kind of thinking about it and stewing in it and, think, and meditating upon it and contemplating it. It should be a great time. So that being said... Revelation chapter 20 is where we're at right now. We're going to jump right in. We've got a lot of stuff to cover. One of the things you guys need to know, kind of by way of preface, that this chapter is a very, very difficult chapter. There's a lot of stuff to cover in this. Um, to be quite frank with you, if I, maybe if I were to do the chapter uh, exhaustively, it would take us weeks, maybe even months to go through it. There's a lot of stuff to sort of decompress in this. So um, if, if you're looking for a very, very comprehensive understanding of chapter 20, uh, I'm totally going to let you down. You're going to be frustrated, and you're not going to be happy. So if you just set your, you know, your standards really low upon me, your expectations really low, then may maybe you might be blessed. Like, this message is going to be horrible today, and maybe by the end you'll be like, this is not so bad. So uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 20, uh, but mainly what we're going to be looking at, uh, as I mentioned, it is a very difficult chapter. In fact, it's one of the chapters I think most scholars, most theologians, uh, have basically recognized that there's a lot of different ways to understand this. We're going to look at 
uh, at least three of the ways in which they've understood this. But one of the things you need to really kind of understand with regard to this chapter that most scholars agree, it's one of the most difficult chapters in the entire book of Revelation. And if that's the case, and if the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult books in the entire Bible, then yes, that means that we're looking at one of the most difficult chapters in the entire Bible to exegete and to exposit. And we're going to do the very best that we can in the time that we have. And uh, hopefully at the end of the day, what we're going to really try to understand and see more than anything is Jesus. Uh, as we kind of said from the very beginning, uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, it describes that the book of Revelation is the unveiling of Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus. We want to make sure that Jesus doesn't just simply get uh, sort of a side note or a footnote. That we just sort of put him over into the margins. We want to make sure that Jesus is the center of the text. He's what we point to in everything that we look at. And everything at the end of the day, even though there might be a lot of variables that we can agree to disagree on or we can work through or we can sort of, you know, lovingly uh, wrestle through and not butt heads in the way enemies butt heads, but butt heads in the way people who really love each other, the way brothers kind of spar with each other. They might get on their mat a little bit and fight each other, but the moment, you know, an outsider comes in and starts picking on your brother who you just beat up, some outside dude, you're going to go, you're going to scrap with him. You're going to fight with him because that's your brother. So if there's going to be certain doctrines in Revelation 20, ideas in Revelation 20 that might rise up, that we might have differing opinions about. But that's okay. It's perfectly okay. They're uh, non-essential items, uh, for the most part, what we'll look at. Some of the essential items that we'll look at, I think we will all already be in agreement with. Uh, but the reality is, we'll look at some of those things. So the way I'm going to break this down for you guys, I'm going to give you, kind of alliterate it for you again. Uh, give you three P's that we're going to look at. The first thing that we're going to take a look at is the process. The end times process of Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> the second thing we're going to take a look at is the person of Christ. Person of Christ. And the final thing is we're essentially going to be taking a look at uh, really kind of how all of this kind of works out in the life. And we're going to essentially identify the practice. How this works out in terms of an ethic. The way we live this out. The way the gospel. The way that uh, this understanding that arises in chapter 20 should actually develop and morph and work its way into a practice. In other words, we want to make certain that our theology has feet, that it lives, that it's walking, that it's active. If our understanding of the Bible, if our pursuit of theology only leads us to simple head knowledge, where here we've just got a bunch of facts, where you know how to parse uh, Greek tenses and verbs, and we don't know how to like, live the gospel, if you're daddy, and if, if all you know is just a bunch of theological doctrine, you don't know how to love your boy, your daughter. You don't know how to be a good husband to your wife and romance her. If you don't know how to be a good citizen in this world in which we live in, then unfortunately the way you're reading your Bible is wrong. Straight up wrong. If you're the type of person that doesn't get to a place where you just fall in love with Jesus, I mean your heart is actually transformed in other words, there's heat that generates out of your, light, out of your life, and not just simple light. You've got to have both, light and heat. It's good to understand things, but it's really important to make certain that the things which we understand lead us to a greater affection for Christ. So that being said, the first thing we're going to take a look at is this process. So if you guys grab your Bibles, uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, I'm going to read down to about verse 6, and then we'll start talking. Then I saw an angel come down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil, Satan, bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years have ended. 
A thousand years is where we get the word millennium. It's not a century, a hundred years. It's not a decade, ten years. We get the word millennium from the, from the phrase a thousand years. We'll come back to that in a second. Then it finishes uh, until a thousand years were ended. And then after he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones and seated on those uh, of, to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or the image or had received its mark on their foreheads or on on their hands. They came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over or ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, here's what I want to take a look at real quickly. There's a handful of words I want to try to work through and try to understand. Um, Before we do, I'm going to to pray real quick, and then we'll get to work. Father, right now we ask you that you would help us. We need your strength, God. We need your help. We want to make certain that in the middle of everything gets placed Christ. God, we know at the center of all things, universally, Christ is God, that's the problem that we always find ourselves wrestling with is what do we do with Christ? Where do we place him? God, we don't want Christ to just be on the outskirts of our life. We want him to be the center of our lives. We we need your help to do that, God, because everything inside of us by default mode because being sinners, this natural bent and tendency towards evil and wickedness, the inclinations of our heart, tendencies, God, that we have are so oftentimes to be self-centered, if not deceived by the dragon. So God, we need your help right now. We pray in our time together here that you would help us just to keep Jesus the center of all things. That we would celebrate him and that we would exalt in him, that we would worship him and love him, be transformed by him, to confess our sin to him and be renewed and have life. So we give you this time right now. Help us, we pray. Help me to be faithful to the text. Help me to be able to be faithful to convey and to communicate your heart, God, in a way that just expresses the beauty of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A couple words I want to take a look at, uh, the first of which is the word heaven. Uh, Verse 1 says, and then I saw an angel come down from heaven. The word heaven uh, is a phrase that oftentimes identifies God's place, God's zone, God's domain, where God is. Uh, It's the idea. Sometimes I think Christians... A lot of times from medieval Christianity and carry over from medieval Christianity, we get this idea that when we die, we go to heaven, everything will just find its final end in heaven. In a sense, there's partial truth to that. Heaven is where God dwells. If you were to die today, right now, you would be absent from your body, as Paul says, and present with the Lord. So technically, yes, you would be in heaven. But in the final state, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, what we're going to see is that heaven actually comes down From God upon the earth, to the earth, heaven will make its abode on earth. We will live in resurrected bodies. In other words, we will not be like angelic beings, disembodied spirits. We will have physical bodies. There will be a physicality to our finality in terms of where we will be for eternity. The eternal state will be in a physical body. So if you think of heaven in terms of some sort of um, you know, place way out there with no physicality, that, that's, that's incorrect. That's impartial. That's not the way that it's intended. There may be a period of time when you die right now, awaiting that final time that will one day come, 
But one day, heaven will come to earth, and there will be the way that God originally intended for it to be, like the Garden of Eden. Um, Jesus had a renewed body, so if you're like, well, what will the resurrected body look like? Paul answers that question. Just like Jesus rose again from the dead, had a physical body. So we will one day be given a body just like Jesus's. It means we're going to eat food. It's one of the reasons why I love heaven. There will be food there. That's really good news to me. And the reality is, is that one day this will happen. Until then, uh, we see what's taking place right now, kind of this in-between series of events. So we see the angel comes down out of heaven or God's zone, God's abode, God's dwelling place. In verse 1 again, it says that he's got these keys. Keys is sort of synonymous or uh, uh, a biblical motif for authority. And if, you know, you're trying to, again, still trying to figure this out, think janitor. Get it? Janitor? Remember when you were a kid? Guy walking in the hallway here, like five classrooms down, and he's got this big jingle, clanking jingle. You're like, that's the dude who has all authority. Doesn't matter what the principal thinks. The janitor has all the authority. Why? Because he's got all the keys. He unlocks everything, even those closets. Nobody even knows what's in there. He's got all authority, all power, because he's got all the keys. So this angel has got the keys, and it refers to some sense of authority and power. And says that, uh, it goes on and says uh, in verse 1, later on the part of that, and his right hand, he's got the key to the bottomless pit. Uh, the word bottomless pit is in the Greek, abuso. I would get the English word abyss, this big, gigantic hole. Uh, Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 2, verse 4. If you want to write those down, you can. It says this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until a final judgment. Jude uh, verse 6 also says a very similar thing. I think it's talking about this abuso or abyss. We don't know where it's at. We don't really know much about it other than the fact that it's some sort of a, a temporary holding cell, kind of like a prison that was used for demons. So we know at the fall, when demons fell originally, whenever that was, not at the fall of man, but whenever they fell, one third of all angelic beings fell with Satan. Some of those angelic beings were relegated over to this group of, or this area, this holding cell called the Abuso. One day in this future state, what's called the millennium, we'll look at that in a moment, they will be bound for a thousand years. So for a thousand years, they'll be bound into that particular spot. Another word that arises in the text in verse 2 is the dragon. We've been very familiar with him. He's sort of made regular appearances on the stage uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Really throughout our, our whole experience of life, we're familiar with that. He's described as the dragon, uh, Satan, the accuser, so on and so forth. Another word that arises is the word thrones. And it says, notice in verse 4, And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who had authority to judge uh, was given to them or committed to them. So these thrones um, are going to be important. They play into the text. And upon the thrones are, is going to be given to these people that have followed Christ. Some of them were told were martyred. They were beheaded. I want you to think about that. These are Christian saints, people who love Jesus, people at some point in their life, they actually gave their lives. Their heads literally rolled on the ground as followers of Christ. I know that's really hard for us to even kind of comprehend and conceive and think about because we live in an environment where there's freedom. We just can't think of the fact of somebody actually dying for their faith because they love Jesus. The reality is is that there, there will be a day when we will recognize that there were many people that actually that's the way they lived was through dying. They died. They physically died. 
because they followed Christ. And so it says that some of these people that will sit on these thrones, uh, that will rule and reign with Christ, uh, have died as a result of their trust and commitment to Christ. It says they didn't take the mark of the beast. It says they didn't buy into the world system. It says they, they, even, they, they were redeemed. They came out of that, and they were brought into Christ's relationship. There's something very similar that kind of arises in the book of Daniel chapter 7. I want to read this to you real fast. It says this in Daniel chapter 7, verse 22. It says, And then I saw the Ancient of Days come, and judgment was given uh, for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom of God. So he makes this point. He says, the Ancient of Days was there. And earlier than that, he actually talks about these thrones that were essentially around the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is probably a reference to God. But around the Ancient of Days, or God, were these thrones. And on these thrones were the saints of the Most High God. And again, again I, I think there's a corollary between this chapter or passage in the book of Daniel many, many books ago, and many, written many, many hundred years ago, and this section that's written here in the book of Revelation, that it's probably a reference to the same type of thing. Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 19, so this is also a teaching that Jesus, our Lord, actually taught to his disciples. Here's what he said in verse uh, 28 of chapter 19. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, so he's referring to a new world, new system, new order, that will one day be established. So which one do we live in? The new world? No, the old world. It's still perverted. It's still broken. It's still rusted. It's still ruined. Has not been made all new yet. One day it will. Jesus says in the new world, new order, he says the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So there you have it. Jesus will sit on a throne. And he says, and you who have followed me will also sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is pretty clear about this. He says part of the new system, the new order, the new world, not the age of Aquarius, but when Jesus comes to rule and reign, when Jesus will be king, when he will establish his new world order and set up the new system, Jesus will be on a throne and rule and reign, but then Jesus will also distribute some sort of uh, or sense of authority and rulership and reigning to his followers, to his saints, to his people that he's redeemed. So that means, quite frankly this, if you're a Christian, one day you will be on a throne with Jesus, ruling and reigning with him. This is not a throne that is given to you out of intrinsic greatness. You are not a ruler and will not be a ruler because of something great about you. That's part of the system of this world. In fact, Jesus was always trying to correct the behavior of his disciples. Even though Jesus would teach these types of things to his disciples, they still didn't quite get it. It's one of the reasons why Peter and James and John, all of them, they fought against each other and constantly bickered as to who was going to be the, the greatest in the kingdom. The reason why is they constantly were hearing Jesus' terminology and conversation about kingdom, and they were understanding the concept of Jesus' kingdom through this lens that's been superimposed over their teaching with the kingdom of Caesar. So every time they think Jesus' kingdom, they're seeing it through this lens of Caesar and of Herod, and of other leaders that can actually buy their position. Jesus is like, you guys don't get it. My kingdom's different. It's not of this world. It's not like Caesar's. You can't buy your position. You don't earn your position. I give it to you. By grace, I give it to you. Men, dads, you gotta know this. Make this very practical for you. If you're a dad, if you're a husband, if you have any type of position of leadership or authority whatsoever, please understand all of it is because of a gift from God. You have been gifted or delegated 
any type of role or position or authority that you have. It's not intrinsic. It's not because you're great. It's not because you're some sort of wonderful person. Therefore, you realize that whatever type of authority you have, it's a gift. It's delegated. You are a steward. Okay? That means if it doesn't belong to you because you've owned it, you bought it, you deserve it, that means that whatever type of authority you have, you have a master over you to whom you will have to give an account as to how you dealt properly or improperly with those whom you were responsible to oversee. Okay, dads, this gets very practical. If you're a daddy, you got kids, children that look up to you as an authority figure. That's not for you to use your authority to constantly bark orders to them to make sure that they make you something made out of carbohydrates all the time. Periodically, you can do that. But if it's the only type of way in which you rule by barking orders and yelling and sort of exercising authority and control in a way to kind of run your house like Castro or some sort of tyrant or some sort of despot, then you are abusing the delegated authority that's been given to you. Does that make sense? There's going to be a day when Jesus will actually delegate to all of his saints, all of the people that have followed Jesus, thrones. It will be a delegated throne. It will be a gifted throne. And it will be a throne that we will rule aside Jesus somehow. I don't even know how that will work, but that's what he says. Okay, with that being said, uh, the last thing he talks about is, uh, is this concept of kingdom or reign. And it's this idea that Jesus will extend his authority in his reign throughout all the earth. There's this great verse in the book of Habakkuk where it says, that as sure as the waters cover the earth, so will the glory of God cover all the earth. In other words, this idea that one day God's presence, God's domain, God's kingdom, God's good rule will actually be known to all people. Now this can be a fearful thing. This is one of the reasons why this is it's a fearful thing is because people mistakenly think of God as being a tyrant. They've looked at the Caesars of this world. They've looked at the despots of this world. Or maybe they had a dad who was that despot. And in their mind, their idea of God being ruler or master has been predefined by the horrible, this horrible example of dad or grandpa or boss or somebody that they had known growing up. And it's horribly defined this concept of who Jesus is. But in reality, in, contra, in, in, in contra, contrast to what's going on here, Jesus is a good God. He's a good father. He's a good king. And he will set up his rule and reign upon this earth, and it will actually be a good reign. Jesus will want to bring life to people who follow him. Not death, not destruction, not oppression, but freedom. That's why Jesus, the Bible describes where God's presence is, where the spirit of the Lord is. There's freedom. God wants to bring freedom. Freedom is not you having the right to do whatever you want. That's really not freedom. Freedom is this notion, this ability to be in community, to love God with all of your heart because truly God sets us free. All right, with that being said, I want to continue this idea of process and look at three interpretive horizons Use that big word, interpretive horizons. Three different ways to understand how this works out. I'm going to show you guys a graph because I know you woke up this morning saying, I really want to go to church and just look at a graph. So you're welcome. We're going to look at a graph. I, I, I made this up, and the reason why I did is because I want to show you guys three different ways in which this 
chapter has been understood historically throughout 2,000 years of history, how people have come to different perspectives about what this chapter is talking about. And uh, there, there are three big words, right? Um, I did not make up any of these words. In fact, I, I pretty much guarantee I'm probably going to say them wrong. I did it first service. It sounded like I was speaking in tongues, and then I actually interpreted it. Um, so, but hopefully I won't botch it this time. So basically the three things that we're going to take a look at. The first one is this, amillennialism. It's pretty good. I almost did it. I almost had it right. I think I botched it towards the end. But uh, the whole idea is to just like speak confidently and keep moving forward, and everybody will think you're just doing right, right? All right. Anyways, amillennialism. It's the idea... That the word A in the Greek language is this idea where it negates something. It negates something. So it negates sort of this concept of a millennium. Millennium, as I mentioned already, is a thousand years. So for those of you that are kind of theologically inclined, you're like chomping at the bit. You're all stoked about this. The rest of you are going to be like, I'm take a nap right now. I'll wake you up in just a few minutes here. But the point is, I just want you guys to know this because th- this is how historically uh, people who've read the Bible have seen this. And the way that you see this will actually color the way you understand the rest of the book. So I'm going to try to hopefully explain it to you as best as I can without putting you to sleep. So, amillennialism. It's the idea that this concept of a thousand year reign is actually not a literal thousand years. It's more metaphorical. And as you notice, uh, the picture, the diagram, the icon is a picture of a crown over the cross. Uh, The amillennialist perspective is that when Jesus died on the cross, rose again, Victory happened. He was crowned king of kings and lord of lords then. In other words, that Jesus was moving forward. His kingdom began to move forward at that particular point, And that this reign of Christ began. And so they would look at the passage following where it says, and Satan was bound for a thousand years. Because part of the millennium is, millennium is that Satan will be bound for a thousand years. I hear sometimes people that may be misinformed and they would look at it and say, well, if, you know, if, if, if Satan was bound for a thousand years... Um, and, and, and we're in the millennium right now, either A, he's got a really, really long leash, or he got off the leash somehow, because there's a lot of evil going on in this world. And the way they, they would argue back with that, they would say, well, we believe that the binding of, G, of Satan during a thousand-year reign or during this millennium period, this metaphorical figure of speech, is that he's bound for a specific purpose, so that he wouldn't deceive the nations. That's what it says in the text. You can read it. So that he would not deceive the nations. And they would interpret that and say, the deceiving of the nations is that prior to Christ's coming, all the nations were in darkness, i.e. Gentiles. They were in darkness. They sat in darkness. But those Gentiles who sat in darkness had seen a great light. And so in other words, during this period of time when Jesus rose again from the dead and began to rule and reign, and now the gospel is going out, not just to the Jews, but to all the nations. In other words, the eyes of their understanding are being opened to see Christ. So Satan, in this perspective, is bound from deceiving the nations, and now the nations, Gentiles, are coming to know Christ. And again, like I said, this is sort of a metaphorical perspective, and it culminates somewhere around chapter 20, 21, where there will be a great final battle, and things will continue to get worse and worse, the way some of the other perspectives view it, and there will be this great final battle where Jesus will ultimately be one, and then we'll move into sort of this eternal state where heaven will then come to earth and we will live forever in that perspective. The second of which is called post-millennialism. In other words, it's the idea that Christ will come at the end of the millennium. Uh, this view, uh, in short, and again, a lot of ways you guys just understand, I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, I'm tr- just given a thumbnail sketch. So this is not comprehensive, and I may be leaving out a lot of details, but I'm trying to be as fair as I can in terms of these perspectives. Post-millennialism, 
views that uh, at the end of this period of time, again, in a lot of ways, which is metaphorical, Christ will come again at the end of it. And this perspective views that the church will continue to grow. They use verses, for example, uh, Jesus talking about the leaven, will leaven the whole lump. And what will, they, they would view that interpretation of that text by saying, uh, the church is going to start out in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Antioch. Then it's going to go to like Tarsus. Then it's going to go to Galatia. Then to, you know, England. Then from England, it's going to get exported and go out to, you know, the Americas and way beyond. In other words, it will just continue to grow and grow and grow. And there will be this influence of righteousness and godliness and gospel-centeredness all around the world. Things will just continue to grow. In some ways, uh, there's a, this, is, this is a very big popular belief um, in especially American evangelicalism until the Second World War. A lot of people believed in post-millennialism until the Second World War because they, they thought, you know, we're riding on the, on the, on the coattails of a lot of, you know, great, um, you know, things happening. Um, great things are taking place in our, in our nation. Technology is booming. I mean, I mean every, everybody's got like, you know, a, a dishwasher and somehow they can, it's, it's amazing. We have blenders and things like that and it's, America's getting really good and things are growing and progressing. The world's getting better. And in other words, it's, it has a very optimistic viewpoint that things will continue to get better and the gospel will continue to spread and then Christ will come sort of at the end of that. And the final one is this, is premillennialism. It's the idea that there is a literal view of a millennium, a thousand years, that Jesus will come at the beginning of, set up his rule and reign. For a thousand years, he will sit upon the throne of David um, and he will rule and reign. And there will be this period of somewhat peace and there's they they point back to a lot of passages in the old testament like in in isaiah and whatnot you know maybe some of you guys have heard the phrase lion will lay down with the lamb it's actually not even a verse right like wait a minute it's on my coffee cup it's wrong like i have a t-shirt throw it away um the idea the idea is that the wolf will lay down with the lamb so that that's the actual verse and it refers to a future state when there will be some sort of peace within the planet and uh uh, premillennials view this as Satan will be bound for a thousand years. He will not be influencing the world culture, world system. There will not be any beast. There will not be any false prophet. Uh, there will just be human beings living underneath the rule and reign of Christ and being part of this sort of global reign, which Christ is king. Um, people will have babies. They'll grow. They'll, they'll live on this planet. Things will be kind of restored to some sort of Edenic type of a uh, perspective, and Christ will rule and reign as king. And um, I'll, I'll just tell you where I land, because some of you are like, where's Brian at? Okay, here's where I am. I, I actually follow, fall in line with sort of the premillennialist perspective. The reason why I, 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 I come to this conclusion is simply this. Most of the Old Testament uh, passages that are prophetic in nature, especially in terms of Jesus' first coming, were really, for the most part, literal. In other words, in Psalm 22, Jesus literally had his hands and his side pierced. Uh, in Malachi, Jesus literally came into the city of Jerusalem on a colt. I mean, th- these, were, these were prophecies that were stated and were very literal and graphic and specific and detailed in their nature. So therefore, I'm coming to led to believe that it would seem as if that most of these other prophecies that refer to some of these future things, like a thousand-year reign, um, would probably happen. That's kind of where I, where I, where I bend today, all right? Um, that being said, um, the, the point that I would, I would make with that is this. Is I realize that, that we can come from different perspectives, different understandings, because, you know, some people, you'll talk different camps, and some people will be like, well, I came to an amillennialist perspective by reading my Bible and by praying. 
and by, you know, just the Lord speaking to me. And the reality is, is that all of them say the same thing. All of them. Everybody who comes from whatever type of perspective they view it is, all believe the Bible is the word of God. All believe God's speaking to them. All believe it's contextual. In other words, it's in the Bible. It's in the text. All of them pray and think that that's where God leading. So here's my point. Is that this is a non-essential issue as to exactly the way the process will go down. There's, a, there's so much variety within this that I don't want for us to be a church that's going to argue and divide over these types of things. In the end of all things, it's not about the process. It's about the person. I don't want to get lost in the process, realizing that there's a lot of ways to view this, all of which, you know, view the Bible as important, view prayer and seeking God and other cross-referencing scriptures as essential and as important, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of variation, a lot of ways to view this, ways to understand this. So that's where I land right now. Um, My encouragement to you would be to just, you know, pray and ask God to speak to you and let God reveal to you where it's at. Um, we have said this before as a church, we are not going to squabble or fight or argue over these types of things. That means that if people want to come here in this fellowship, we don't have to be in uniformity over these things. But what we do need to be in uniformity over is Jesus. We don't want to get so lost in the process that we lose sight of the person. Jesus is who we have to keep our eyes fixed on. So that being said, I'm going to jump on to the very next thing, taking a look at the person who Christ is, and there's two things that basically I want to really draw our attention to. The first of which is that Christ is revealed in the text here as king. Take a look at it somewhere around verse 4, and it goes on and says this, uh, around verse, I don't know, 5. It says, verse 4, latter part of verse 4 says, And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ uh, a thousand years. And then later on down about verse 6, it says, And they will reign with him for a thousand years. The word reign again, is this idea or this picture that Jesus is a king. And that every good king has a kingdom. And he has a reign over that kingdom. So a king has a domain, has a kingdom, but he also has a way in which he governs over that kingdom. That governance is called his reign. How he reigns, how he exercises authority, how he exercises his power, how he demonstrates his goodness and kindness to his subjects, whoever they may be. And so Jesus, we see first and foremost, is identified and revealed as king. It's really important for us to understand this. Because at the end of the day, what we need to realize is that Christ, when he first came, he came subjecting himself really as a servant. It's really the classic story of king becoming a servant and going back and revealing his true identity. In a lot of ways, this is one of the reasons why some people kind of view the story of Joseph as this amazing a foretelling foreshadow or picture of Christ long before he came on the scene. Because here you got this guy, Joseph, who gets sold off into slavery. He ends up making his way into this prison in Egypt. And he becomes, you know, this second guy in charge. He's running everything. He's running the show of all of Egypt. And his brothers come, and they don't know, have any idea who he is. And it's part of the irony of the whole story. I mean, his brothers wronged him. So, I mean, if, if at the end of the day, what he could have done is he could have killed him. Could have walked in there, and they were like, we want grain. He could have just said, all right, I'm going to kill you right now, and that's it. It's over. I'm your brother. Remember, you sold me way, 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 way back in the day because they were jealous of me. Now here, look at me. I got nice clothes, nice duds. Look at you guys, your slave servants. I'm going to kill you. But he doesn't. He actually covers himself, veils himself. And then the second time he comes back out, he actually unveils himself. He reveals himself. In a lot of ways, that's the picture of what's going to happen with Christ. First time he came, 
No one really knew who he was, except a select few. Except a handful of people, peasants, homeless people, not very smart people, people that just willingly followed Christ. He opened their eyes and they saw his beauty. John would later write about Jesus and says, we beheld his beauty. We, we, just, we didn't even know who he was at first, but God opened our eyes. We saw him as, and the guy that we hung out with wasn't just some guy. He wasn't just some peasant. wasn't just some sort of itinerant preacher hanging around in Judea. He was God in the flesh. The second time Jesus is going to come back again, he will reveal himself as king, as sole authority over all things. The second thing that we notice about Christ is he will also reveal himself as judge. Take a look at about verse 11. Says this, we'll read to the end of the chapter. So then I saw a great white throne. Actually, I'm gonna jump back real quick in verse 7. It says, And then when, th- when a thousand years had ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive uh, the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them to battle uh, with number, and their number will be like the sand of the sea, and they will march up over the broad plain of earth, surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. Probably a reference to Jerusalem. And fire then will come down from heaven and consume them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. And there was a beast and the false prophet were there. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, this reference, if you guys want to write this down in the margin of your Bible, write down Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. I believe it's probably a reference to this day. Um, some would try to straightjacket it and make it take place maybe before the great tribulation i think it's very likely that it probably happens at the end of this millennial reign so in other words um you know I, my opinion this is my opinion it could be totally wrong but the reality is that you know maybe ezekiel 38 39 won't happen in the next like three years but actually might happen in a thousand years from now i don't know but it seems like there's some sort of corollary going on here verse 11 it says and i saw a great white throne and him who seated who was seated upon it uh, with from his presence, the earth and the sky fled away. There's no place found for, for them. It says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Another book was open, and it was the book of life. And all the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were then thrown to the lake of fire. And this is the second death. In the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he too was also thrown in the lake of fire. So what we see here is Jesus portrayed as a judge, as not just king, but also judge. Jesus will also judge rightly, and his judgment will be just. So the picture that goes on here is that Jesus will then, at the end of this period of time, this reign, kingdom reign of a thousand years, whatever, he will actually allow Satan to come back out of this pit, Zabuso, and he will then go out and deceive the nations again, starting with you know, Gog and Magog, again, you can read Ezekiel 38 and 39, kind of get some sort of picture as to what that is, if you're interested in that. And then at the end of, of all of that, Jesus then will take Satan and cast him into this lake of fire. And it's already in the lake of fire. You have this false priest who was identified as the first beast, or, or this false um, prophet, um, the second beast, and then the first beast, which was sort of like this uh, antichrist type figure. And basically finishes it all by saying, and all whose names were not found written in the book of life will also be cast in there. I've said this before, I'll say it again. What you guys need to keep in mind is the reality is that hell was actually not intended or made for human beings. So Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 25, he says hell was created for Satan and his angels. 
It was created for Satan and his angels. But here's what's happened. Satan has deceived people. He's seduced people. We've mentioned this before several times. That what Satan does is he uses bait. Bait in the form of like promises that come through sin. And what he does is he hides within that bait hooks. And the moment we take that bait, we sort of bite this hook. I was reading or actually I was listening to this audio book and actually went on these online videos on YouTube and I was kind of watching this thing. There's this interesting type of a wasp. It's actually called a parasitic wasp. Uh, have you guys ever heard of it? Okay, like two of you did. Okay, I'm going to tell you about it. It's a crazy wasp. It flies around and what it does is it looks for its prey. Maybe a cockroach, maybe a caterpillar. Here's what it does. It finds it and it goes and it lands on it and then it sticks its, you know, some sort of injects, some sort of a poison or toxin into its brain where it literally now controls it. Here's what it does. It'll either drag it or once it kind of comes out of this sort of like funk and it starts kind of moving around again, the, the, literally the wasp will get on the back of like the cockroach and drive it. Not kidding, like drive this cockroach. Imagine that, you know, driving a cockroach on top and it'll drive it to this like little zone, this little spot, this little pit, and then it will kind of enclose the cockroach in the pit. Before he encloses the cockroach in the pit, here's what he does. He injects an egg inside the body of the cockroach, all right? So the cockroach is like living in this little jail cell. doesn't know what it's doing. It's like its brain is all like zapped and messed up and wigged out. But inside of it is growing the larva of this next gen, okay? And then it dies, obviously, because it gets eaten from the inside out. That is sin. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus warns us against. Beware of the dragon. He's looking for somebody to infect to possess you, to take control of your mind, to literally just tangle with the devil, and then all of a sudden, you find yourself under some sort of horrible control, and inside you, some sort of alien, weird, possessive being that will destroy you. This is one of the reasons why God, as a good God, says, I don't want you to sin. Do you understand that? It's Father's Day. I love my daughters. There's certain things I don't want them to do because I love my daughters. No whacking is allowed because I love both my daughters. I don't want my older daughter to whack my younger daughter because I love my younger daughter and because I'm, I'm afraid that my younger daughter will retaliate and whack back twice as hard, my older daughter, and then we have war in our house and I don't want war because I want peace. I want a house that's full of peace where we can sit down and eat ice cream together or we can go outside and jump on a trampoline without someone getting hurt I want peace in my house because I love it when there's peace, shalom, because then we can be a family and enjoy the life that God wants us to enjoy. You know what ruins that? Rebellion, sin. It disrupts everything. It withholds ice cream. It withholds blessing. It withholds good times jumping up and down on trampoline because I can't, I can't trust the kids right now. They might actually get vindictive and jump on another child in the trampoline rather than jumping on the trampoline itself out of vindication and anger and wrath and I don't want that because I love my kids dad God is a good dad who loves us he doesn't want us to sin because he knows where sin leads us it leads us to a state that will destroy us but there will be people that will basically give God the middle finger and say I don't want you and they will go the way of their Lord their master Satan who is going to go into the lake of fire, and all who follow him, all who have signed on to his team, all who are part of that team will then end up in that lake burning with fire and brimstone. That's what Jesus says. 
So we see Jesus as a judge in that respect. The last thing I want to finish with is this. Is it says, kind of this little section here, that the earth and sky, they fled from his face. Uh, some of your translations might say they fled from his eyes. Uh, the Greek word there is prosopon. Uh, it's the idea of something before pro. And sopon, we get the English word like ophthalmology, you know, the word of eye, optical lens. The word op is the idea of sight or visage or presence. And it's saying that before the presence of God, before the presence of Christ, all things will just acknowledge something of his greatness and they'll flee before his eyes. That to me is radically interesting to contrast that with Matthew chapter 26 where it says when Jesus was taken hostage in the household of his own brothers, it literally says that people spit on his face. The very face of God was allowed to be spit upon the very same face that someday in the future, earth and sky itself will flee from. My point is this. First time Jesus came, he came as a lowly, humble peasant to seek and save the lost. To demonstrate the fact that he's not a far off God. He's not the type of God that the Epicureans preach or the type of God the Stoics proclaim. He is the type, he's not, he's not an angry, capricious God like the way the Greeks portrayed in Zeus. He's not the way the Egyptian God portrayed him as some sort of capricious God of the sky, of the sun. But he is a God that is actually near. He draws near to us. He understands our pain and our suffering and the things that we deal with on the day-to-day level in this life. That's how near and how close he's willing to come to rescue, to save, the redeem. And we can look at that and we can fight him. We can do all the things that we want to rebel against him. But at the end of the day, what's going to end up happening is that Christ will come back and he will come back as king. The final thing is this. When we talk about practice, so first of all, we looked at the whole process. Secondly, we looked at the person of Christ. The final thing is I'm going to look at practice. Maybe another way you can look at this is end times ethics. How should we live? How should all this affect us? I want you to take a look at one simple verse. We'll kind of wrap it up on this. It says this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. It says, in the rest they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I want you guys to just think about that, to meditate upon that concept. That if you're a Christian here today, you will reign with Christ. You will be given authority with Christ to rule and reign with Christ. Do you know that the rest of the New Testament really is trying to live out, to understand, to bang out, to hash out, to work out, to live out what it means that Christ is king and that we're going to reign with him? It's really the way the rest of the New Testament is written. I'll give you one of the examples of that. Take a look at um, uh, 1 Corinthians, this great little verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through about verse 3, it says this. When one of you guys have a, have a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So what's basically going on here in the Corinthian church, again, just a bunch of Christians, love Jesus, a little bit kind of messed up. In a lot of ways, it's just like us, trying to figure things out. And yet they've got people in the church that are kind of like in lawsuits or locked down and some sort of problems and petty issues going on with each other. And what's going on is they're basically getting ready to go to court to sue each other. Now it's interesting because a lot of people kind of use this verse. They're like, well, Paul says you cannot ever go to law. You cannot ever go to a court system. It's actually not what he's saying. Read the text again. He is saying that should you not try to figure to work it out and should you try to go to a non-Christian and let them figure it out for you, so that's kind of a bummer. It's kind of shameful, because really at the end of the day, you guys should be able to work these things out yourself. Here's what he goes on to say. 
And he says in verse 2, he says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Here's what Paul does. Paul basically takes this anchor, and he throws it as far as he can into the future, into eternity. And he's like, listen, you want to know where we're at? Want to know where we're anchored? You and I, in Christ, one day will be on thrones judging with Jesus. So you're like, well, how does that figure out and work out and play out in my life today? Paul's basic point is that, look, work back from there. If you are one day going to be in eternity judging the nations with Christ, being delegated all sorts of information and knowledge that may be precious or gentle, and you need to somehow have great skill and wisdom to deal with it, that will be the situation one day in the future. Paul's basically saying, start walking in that now. Start living that reality today. Starting with your inter- racial disputes or intercommunication or inter, you know, whatever demographics that you're dealing with, inter, you know, denominational disputes now. Start dealing with those relationships now in a way that's anchored in eternity. Does that make sense? Let me give you one more example because some of you are like, what is he talking about? All right, I'll give you another example. Princess Diaries. You guys ever seen that? I got two daughters. Like, all you men are like, no, no, I've never seen that. Yes, you have. You had a girlfriend. You saw it with them. It's okay. I've seen it many times. And, and basically the story is, I mean, you know it's a chick flick. Anything that has the name Princess and Diaries together, you know it's a chick flick. All right? I would never watch it if I didn't have two daughters and a lovely wife. But I love them, and I'm willing to make great sacrifices, even if it's at the expense of my manlyhood. And I've watched this movie, and it's really about this girl, um, but Anne Hathaway, and it's, I said Princess, Di- yeah, Princess Diaries. I think first service I says Princess Bride, so I totally biffed it first time. Okay, here, I'm back on track. Um, the, the reality is that it's, it's about this girl that all of a sudden she finds out she's actually a princess of this, you know, made-up place called Genovia. So the whole point of the movie is her now trying to fit the role that she actually is in, Right? She's trying to live it out. She's trying to act and live out the role of what it is like to be princess-like, all right? So the point of the matter is, is that if we are in Christ, and we will one day rule and reign with Christ, on thrones with Christ, the Christian life is us living out now, currently, what we will be one day that we are anchored in eternity for. Does that make sense? That's the way it ought to work out. That's what the Christian life is like. This is one of the reasons why forgiveness is important to God. It's not optional. It's not up to us to just be like, I'm a Christian and I refuse to forgive people. It just just doesn't work that way. It's inconsistent. It's incongruent with the very character and nature of God. If you're just like, "I'm I'm just happy to live in ignorance and I'll just keep judging people and being critical and whatnot, not even dealing with the facts. It is not consistent with God. God says one day you will judge thrones on thrones with me. Start living that out now. Start walking that out now. This is one of the reasons why justice matters to God. Why God cares about the oppressed. Why God cares about the hurting, the suffering, the marginalized, the people that are sort of ostracized from society. It's why God cares about these people. So should we. It's in the heart of God. It's in the character of God. It's in our DNA. If Christ lives in our heart, it's in our DNA. So the reality of the Christian, in a lot of ways, is just shedding this outer skin, this outer veneer of earthliness. 
of worldliness and living out the nature that's inside of us that's been anchored in eternity. So my appeal to you guys, brethren, sister, church, fam, is to live according to who you are in Christ. Live according to the fact that one day you will be on those thrones delegated to you, judging nations with Jesus. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but there's enough of a metaphor that's used there that relates to the way that we would conceive of it now. I don't know exactly in its fullest extent what that's going to be, but there's enough of a concept that's there that just says it will involve being righteous. It will involve dealing with facts in a way that's like God. That's just, but tempered with mercy. That's lion-like, but also lamb-like. That's how it will be. I want to wrap it up, finish up. We're going to respond to God right now. We're going to sing to him. We're going to have an opportunity. I'm going to have the guys come up and get ready to leave us in some worship, some song to Christ. We're going to respond to Christ right now by singing to him. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings to, to the Lord. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. This is an opportunity for us to give out of generosity because, again, God's a generous God. Because God is always concerned about the needs of other people. And we want to be the same way. We want to be generous. We'd be concerning about anything that's going on. It's a way for us to give back to God. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity to partake of communion. If you're here and you know Christ, you're a follower of Christ, my encouragement to you guys would be to partake of communion. Think of it as a meal that you're being invited into by Christ to sit down with him, to partake, to indulge, to engage. In a lot of ways, the celebration of partaking of the communion really symbolizes a future meal that we will have one day sitting down with Jesus in the kingdom. In other words, it's like a crouton in the salad that fell out. All right? It's a little bit. It's never going to fully satisfy us. That's why we eat it every week. That's why we remember Christ in his future kingdom every week because we, we need that. We need that. We're so quick to forget. We're so, so quick to forget about the moral ethic of the kingdom, of how the gospel works its way out in our life, that we need these perpetual reminders. And so we're going to sing, we're going to worship, we're going to give back to God. Um, we're going to partake of communion. And some of you here, maybe you guys just need to repent of sin, let go of sin. You need to realize there's a big, massive, parasitic wasp on your back called Satan. You might not think it's a big deal, but it will kill you. This is why Jesus said sin will lead to death, but obedience to Christ leads to life. I'm going to pray. I think our worship leader's here. Is he? Oh, here we go. Come on up. Come on up. Come on down. Didn't mean to embarrass you. I did. I'm just kidding. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to worship and sing. And uh, if you guys are here and you got your kiddos, and you want to go bring them in, that's fine. Uh, we totally welcome people bringing their kiddos into service to worship with them, partake of communion together. Um, but definitely be cognizant of other people in here as worshiping as well. You know, they're young, and they like to be talkative. Just be cognizant of other people trying to worship as well. So let's sing. Let's worship. Let's engage our hearts, our minds, our souls, our thoughts, and our affections to God. Worship him as king, as judge, as one day coming, and yet has already come as a humble servant to seek and save the lost. Jesus, thank you that you left your throne of glory to enter into our world, into our bodies, into our suffering, into our pain, 
Jesus, in many ways, you allowed the wasp to sting you. And yet, because you're God, and because there is no sin in you, you couldn't be bound by it. Nothing evil could have ever have been birthed inside of you, because you are God. You are victorious over sin and death, and that's why you reign. That's why you rose again from the grave. And that's why Paul can look death and sin in the eye and say, death, where is your victory? There is no victory outside of Christ. And yet in Christ there is victory. We've got an amazing future, amazing hope to look forward to. So Father, right now I pray that as we live our lives anchored in eternity, that the way that we live today, the way that we act today, the way that we think today, the way that we walk today, the way that we parent today, the way that we live our lives today would be connected, not disconnected from where we stand in Christ. But it would be because of who we are in Christ, of where we stand in Christ we would live out the gospel in that way help us right now God I pray anybody else here that doesn't know Jesus Lord I just ask you that it help them to confess their sin to look to Christ to call upon him and to be saved